0: Isaiah 24. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You and bless You for this opportunity tonight to read and to study Your Word. Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And how we need Your Word to help us, to guide us in our walk with You. For indeed, Lord, we live in the last days. And in these last days, we, we realize that there is so much that the world and the flesh and the devil would like to do in upending us from that walk with You. The deceitfulness of this world seems to trip up so many believers and so many Christians. Lord, we desire this evening to to see the seriousness, the importance of Your Word in our study, in our reading, our meditation of it. To see and to note carefully at the end of all things is indeed at hand. We pray, Father, that uh, we will be light, and with Your light, show us light. We pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah twenty-four. Let's read the first six verses, and then we'll come back to them in just a moment. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty. And makes it waste. In other words, he strips the land or the earth, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with a servant, so with his master. As with a maid, so with her mistress. As with a buyer, so with a seller. As with a lender, so with a borrower. As with a creditor, so with a debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. And therefore the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. We are entering into a new section of Isaiah's prophecy, chapters 24 through 27, which has been called by some, and I should say that chapter 24 itself has been called by some Bible commentators, Isaiah's little apocalypse, and you'll see as we go through this chapter today why it is called that. For it it describes the earth's devastation and, and the intense suffering of people during the coming tribulation, as well as the blessings to flow in the millennial kingdom. But in this one chapter, we find the whole picture of this apocalypse. The judgments to the nations that were described in the previous chapters, from chapters 13 through 23, Form the backdrop for the Lord's eventual judgment on the whole world. There were judgments to specific countries or specific nations and cities, to Babylon, to Tyre, to Moab, even to Jerusalem. But now all of that is just backdrop to what God is doing in this particular chapter. Apocalyptic literature, by the way, is a special kind of prophetic writing. That is marked by its occupation with end time concerns. We hear the word apocalypse, oftentimes we may think of uh, some, we may confuse that with, with other particular terms that, that speak of a great war or a great battle or a great fire and whatnot. Uh, sometimes that word is used in that particular way, but, but apocalyptic literature is just literature that concerns itself with end-time concerns. And, and, and the best-known examples of apocalyptic literature is, uh, are, are parts of the book of Daniel, uh, very uh, strong parts of it, Daniel chapter 7 through 9 and so on and so forth. And, uh, and the book of Revelation, which is, by the way, also known as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, the word in the Greek, apocalypse literally means the unveiling or the uncovering. And so it is a revealing then. And this is why Revelation is called what it is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ or the uncovering of Jesus Christ. In other words, the uncovering of Jesus Christ in His majesty, His own personal manifestation and unveiling in the scenes and administrations of the great day of the Lord. Now when we talk about the day of the Lord, we have to also understand that that is crucial to our understanding of apocalyptic literature because it is a very focus of concern about the judgments that are coming upon this world. And, and so that's why one reason why we add the word apocalypse to, to judgment. But, but understand that the day of the Lord is not a day of, of, of joy, of gladness, of rejoicing. It is a day of great sorrow. Because, and it is not just one day. It is a period of time it talks about the judgments that are coming upon this earth. Judgments that God has promised to bring to this earth because of disobedience and rebellion by those who were created in the image of God. Now consider what Jesus described when we talk about these end-time issues. Consider what Jesus described. Matthew chapter 24. Let's turn there for just a moment. Or you can write down these... Uh, particular references, but Matthew 24 verses 21 and 22 tell us, for then there will be great tribulation. Now these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is talking about a time of tribulation, a time of great pain and sorrow, suffering uh, and persecution. And and it says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. If we've we've ever thought that, that there's been a, a tremendously devastating time period in, in this world, uh, we have yet to really see how devastating things can be. And Jesus is saying that about what is to come. Verse 22, He says, And unless the those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now this is what Isaiah is inviting us to behold. Listen, that first word in verse 1 is an invitation. Isaiah is saying, look upon the scene of God's judgment. He says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. Things are going to change. That—that That is really the picture that Isaiah wants us to see here. In this time of tribulation, in this time of great judgment, in this time of... of, of of uh, uh, dealing with sin as as God wants to eventually and completely do it. All of these things are going to happen. The earth is going to look like a wasteland. And wherever people have been comfortable, they are going to be scattered throughout. There's There's a key Hebrew word, here that we need to focus on in this chapter. It comes up quite a bit. One word in the Hebrew, three words in the English. The word is Eretz. Eretz, E-R-E-T-Z. As a matter of fact, when you go to Israel uh, to this day, you are welcome to Eretz Israel, which is the land of Israel. And so we have the word Eretz in our text, which is used 16 times in this chapter. But the three English words are the words land, earth, and world. And depending upon how it is used in the context of this is why the English will, will, will kind of suggest these particular terms. For the most part, it's right. But we're going to see how, how, how it begins to give us a focus of, of the land of Israel before it really takes uh, and gives us a, a broader picture Of the earth and the world. But the judgments of God seem to begin with Eretz Israel, which is the land of Israel. Consider the context following the judgment of Jerusalem in the previous chapter. What we saw last time was this judgment coming upon Jerusalem. So it it just goes, uh, you know, to uh, the context of things that it is dealing first and foremost with the land of Israel. Uh, As well as the next verse, as you look at verse 2. Uh, that refers to the priest. That, that's really kind of an eye-opener to let us know, well, you know, th- this is talking about a priest, or, or uh, in general, uh, priestly people in comparison to others. And so uh, they knew all about priests, of course, because of their temple and all. But they will widen now to include the whole earth. So it begins more specifically with Israel and then goes on to the whole earth. And even the judgment will will, will be about beings in heavenly realms as we'll see in verse 21. But the land of Israel is often described in Scripture as a land that is flowing with milk and honey, but here we see it as the very opposite. A land that is parched, a land that is dry, unable to sustain its inhabitants, who are fleeing in terror due to the judgments of the Lord. Now, there are some indications here that this you know, coincides with things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, what he said in Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 13. When you go back to read these particular passages, you realize that there is some mention of the scattering away from this particular land, the land of Israel. And then uh, there is a phrase that uh, we don't want to gloss over hastily. We don't want to go through it right away and just leave it uh, being, and it's better really read in the King James. So in the King James Version of Isaiah 24, verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste. And notice the next phrase, and turneth it upside down. <laughs> that's an important phrase. The way it's written there, that's, that's literally what it says. Turneth it upside down, and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Rather than just you know, the, the thought of distorting its surface, it's turning it upside down. Uh, everything, in other words, everything that unbelieving Israel has trusted in will be broken in pieces. Everything that it trusted in is going to be turned upside down. And, and usually when that happens, of course, things are upset. Things are, are, are not the way they're supposed to be, or at least in the minds and hearts of people. And, and so things are going to be turned over and, and broken, really. And their hopes will turn out to be only idle dreams because while they have returned to their own land, they do so right now, even today. They do so in unbelief. They have counted on their own ability to enable them to become and to build a great nation again in the land of their forefathers. I'm not saying something. I'm I'm not giving my commentary here. The land of Israel today is there because God wants His his people there. But in their hearts, for the most part, in their hearts, they have survived the Holocaust. They have survived the the various and and, and many uh, uh, captivities to be where they are. They have gotten themselves there. So they say, or so they think. The majority of them, of course, there are, there are many religious people who know it, that it's God, but many of the Jews that are living in the land today—they're atheists. They don't believe in God. They, they just wrote God off because of the Holocaust. They, they say, "Well, if God is going to do that to people, then, then we have no God." But we still are to pray for them. We still are to support them. We still are to love them. But greater disaster lies, folks. Greater disaster lies ahead for them than any they have known in the past. We think think they've endured the worst. The prophet Zechariah reminds us of this. That there is worse yet to come. Zechariah 13 verse 8 says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, That two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Folks, that's two-thirds of the inhabitants of the land in a time to come. But one-third shall be left in it. A remnant. God has always left a remnant. And not until they turn to the Lord and look upon Him whom they have pierced Will their hopes be made real? It is also significant that the text is alternating between the land and the people. As as we saw in in verse 1 of our text, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts the surface, but scatters abroad its inhabitants. It it seems to alternate here between the land and the people. And if if we saw verse 1 as the land, we also see verses 2 and 3 as the people. For it says, And it shall be as with a people, so with a priest. As with a servant, so with his master. As with a maid, so with her mistress. As with a buyer, so with a seller. As with a lender, so with a borrower. As with a creditor, so with a debtor. That, that covers a lot of people, doesn't it? It covers a lot of people. There's a tremendous comparison being made here for a reason. Verse 3 says, The land shall be entirely emptied. And utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Again, you see the alternating concern of the land, the people, the land. What we have to understand about verse 2 is that God is not a respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. Position, power, and purse or prosperity is no protection for anyone. There are people that, li- that are living today, and not just in Israel, but even in this world. There are people today who think that by their financial security, their financial strength, they are going to be sheltered from anything that may happen worldwide. But that just isn't the case. There's a lot of people with a lot of money out there in the world today. In our country especially. It's amazing how much money there is in this country. I don't have any, do you? Somebody's got to have it. But folks, the comparisons are being given here. The comparisons given here by the prophet show us that high positions in life will not protect from the judgments of the Lord. And low positions in life won't protect you either. There are people today who think, well, you know, I'm, I'm just under, the, I want to just live under the radar, man. I will go here and there and nobody's going to know where I'm at if something happens, you know. Hey, no one, you see, during this time, during what time? The Great Tribulation, during what time? The Day of the Lord. No one's going to be living outside of the radar or under the radar or away from the radar, as it were. When the judgment of the Great Tribulation period comes, it will be complete in its scope. That is what the prophet is saying here. As the people, so the priest. You see that list? The servant, so with the master. Doesn't matter. The maid, her mistress, the buyer, the seller, the lender, the borrower, the creditor, the debtor. Doesn't matter which side of the you know which side of the counter you're on. The judgment of God is going to touch every person. There will be no advantage to any special position in society. The judgment will affect all on earth. Our security. We're not in the Great Tribulation right now, but nonetheless, our security right now is not in anything of this world. It is not, you know, as, as as the psalmist says, you know, we don't trust in chariots or horses. We trust in the Lord. Our security must be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's our sh- He's our sword. He's our shield. He's our buckler. He's our ever-present help in time of need. He is everything that we need. He's our great shepherd. He is the door to the, to the sheepfold. He is the, he is the shepherd Himself. He is the Creator. He is God. He is the one that we need to come to and rest in, you see. We are to find our safety, our security in Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I I won't want anything. I I won't desire anything. Because I have everything in Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. When He had called the people to Himself with His disciples also, He said to them, verse 34, Whoever desires to come after Me, listen, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. What will it profit a man? He gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Loses his own soul. I chose this particular passage. Jesus is quoted three times, but I choose this because of that phrase, and loses his own soul. Every person in this world is responsible before God. It's a heavy-duty thought. But every person is responsible. What will it profit? It doesn't, you see. That's the answer. It doesn't profit. The world will not profit us. While we are supposed to be good stewards of what God has given to us, we are to, to be wise in, in, in the decisions we make uh financially and all of that. But folks, it comes down to this our security, our safety, our salvation is in Jesus Christ. Let's never forget that. And then there are those who believe that the church will be left on earth to endure the great tribulation. Why, I don't know, but yet be you know what they think is you know we're gonna be miraculously protected from judgments. But this passage here reinforces. It reinforces the idea that the judgments of the Lord during this time of great tribulation will be universal in scope and no class of people will be immune. So God knows what He's doing when He talks about taking His own people out of the way when that tribulation period comes. I want you to remember the statements that are given to us in the Scriptures concerning the church. 1 Thessalonians 1. Verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us uh, what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For Him to have to deliver us from the wrath to come is to say that wrath is going to touch everything and everyone that is on this earth. The earth will be desolate. The people will be scattered. First Thessalonians five, verse nine. <clears throat> For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to the church in Revelation chapter three, verse ten. It says, He says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. You see the distinction there. I'll keep you from that hour of trial. Because he's coming, it's coming upon the whole world. This judgment is universal in scope. It is to test those who dwell on the earth. Earth dwellers. We are not earth dwellers, folks. We are heaven dwellers. We are already sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians tells us that. We are not of this world, the Bible tells us. We are ambassadors of Christ coming through this world, but we're not of this world. Let's get it clear how awesome in in scope, how how dreadful it's going to be. And so what is the reason for the desolation depicted and the the punishment that is given? What is the reason then for this? Verses 4 and 5, let's look at it. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. You know what it means to languish? It means to be feeble and to be weak. The world becomes feeble and weak and it fades away. The haughty people, in other words, the proud people of the earth, they languish. They're not so great as they thought. They're feeble and they're weak as well. In other words, they're sick. Honestly, that's what the word means. They're sick. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed. Here's the reason. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. God's law has been transgressed. Please forgive me, but i got things in both of my eyes, so if I keep doing stuff like this, that's trying to just be able to see you a little better. God's law has been transgressed. This is what is being said. The reason why they're going to go through this is because God's law will be transgressed. The idea of transgression being to step over the line. That's what it means. When you transgress something, you step over the line that has been established. In this case... People are stepping over the line that God has established. That's what a transgression is. When you step over the line, God says, don't go there, and we go there, and we go over the line. That's a transgression. And the Lord has set boundaries for us, but many do not want to deal with or even respect what He has set before us for our own good. Was there a transgression in the garden? There certainly was a transgression. The Lord says of the whole garden, you can have any fruit, anything that you want in this whole garden except for this one tree. The fruit of this one tree. You don't want to even go there because on the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. He says, here's a boundary. Don't cross it. And they crossed it and man died spiritually. And from that point on, man began to die progressively sooner than was to be expected. The Lord has set boundaries, you see. The boundaries are good for us. They help us to stay on track with, with Him. I mean, even in our own laws, in our own civil laws, in a, a municipal laws, state laws, you know, even the laws, of uh, uh, federal laws, whatever. They help us to stay safe. Sometimes we think a law might not be a good law, so we take it to legislators to see if they can change it. But the fact of the matter is, boundaries are supposed to be good for us. Our, our, you know, our, our city, our street traffic laws, they're supposed to be for our good. How many people are dying because they, they don't follow, they transgress the law? I know it sounds mundane, but folks, that's what's happening. National advertising slogans reveal the very spirit of the times in which we live. Listen carefully. You know them. Just do it. It doesn't seem like, I mean, it seems harmless. But people today just do it, whatever it is. Without concern for other people, without concern for what it might do. I'm not talking about just wearing a pair of shoes. I'm talking about the attitude. Just do it. Listen. Break all the rules. These are, by, by the way, from commercials or advertising. Break all the rules. Nothing is taboo. Find your own road. There was one about a car, you know, that you, you're supposed to, you, you can go ahead and go outside of the line, you know. Remember when we were kids, we had to keep everything within the lines of our, 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 our Crayola painting and stuff, you know. But now it's find your own road. Go beyond the line. To know no boundaries. No fear. If it feels good, do it. Right? This is what we get. This is what we're hearing. The idea is consistent and it is constant. There is no need to respect God's boundaries. So go ahead and make your own and live by those. Consider where that has gotten us today. Consider the Ten Commandments that were given to His own people. In a matter of weeks, every one of those commandments was broken by the people who stood at the the base of Mount uh, uh, Sinai and, and they said, We will do this law. Every law was broken. Every law transgressed. You shall love the Lord your God and only Him shall you worship. You shall make no graven images. Not long after this, off they go to move Aaron to make a golden calf you see that one transgression in the garden has opened the floodgates we have god's law we have god's word now it talks about how we are to love one another and how we are to love god in those two hang all the law and the prophets But where is the Godness? Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. In other words, everything God has done can be seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, man is without excuse. We, we know God. Notice what it says. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. God set boundaries. They didn't like the boundaries. They said, well, we're not thankful for that, but became futile in their thoughts, And their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Isn't that the the, the nature of of, of the world today? Professing to be wise, they become fools and changed. I want you to notice the word changed there. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. That is going on tremendously today. Who exchanged the truth of God for of the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The boundaries have been crossed. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God. And what is the next thing that we see in our text? They changed something else. They not only transgressed the laws, they changed the ordinance, it tells us. This is so significant, especially in our own time, for this tells us that the ordinance, and by the way, you know what the word ordinance there is in the Hebrew? Torah. Torah. It is the word Torah. The law. Has been changed to accommodate mankind's desire for a lighter or even non existent moral code. They've changed it. All of you Christians out there, all you do is judge, 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 judge. Can't be judging me. Doesn't the Bible say not to judge us, not to judge me for what I'm doing? Judge not, lest you be judged. They use that often, you know, the the, the people who think that they're right with God, but they're not, you know, because they're they're wanting to establish, you know, they they want to be right in what they're doing. What does it tell us in the Old Testament? Those who are right in their own eyes. So they change the ordinance no longer what God wants us to do anymore. Now we just need to be like Jesus. Let's just love one another. Let's, you know, and and, and be tolerant with each other. Hey, listen, you know, the Christian has to be tolerant with everybody, but no one is tolerant with us. And unfortunately, even some so-called translations of the Bible have weakened the power of God's law. Honestly. We've talked about this before. I don't want to go into great detail. I didn't want to do that, but I think one of the One of the translations that that has set this on is is this this thing called the message. I don't recommend it. It's so far from what God's Word is really trying to tell us. So far. I'll have to talk about it another time. I've talked about it before. Today in our society, in our culture, it is no longer wrong to lie, to cheat, to be sexually immoral. We know it is, but In people's minds. It's no longer wrong. Some of these things should even be celebrated with approval. And it is. It's being done. People are celebrating, you know, lifestyle things and and all kinds of stuff. And and parading it around as if it's okay now. It wasn't okay then. It's not okay now. Now. desiring to change the law, which we know, of course, that it cannot be changed. Mankind has become ripe for judgment, you see. Mankind has become ripe for judgment. Second Timothy chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to start at the beginning of this chapter, Second Timothy 3. You can read it yourself. Perilous times, right? But notice what it says. People want to have a form of godliness. Well, look look at what it says. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, and knowing this, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is amazing to me how many people who have a whole bunch of little letters after their names because they've gone to, you know, the seminary or cemetery or whatever you want to call it, and they've gone over there and they they study all these books and they study all this, this stuff, but they stay away from God and they have all of this knowledge and they keep saying, well, that's not exactly what the Bible says and that's not exactly what God said. That's not exactly what Jesus said. And they say all of this. They're always learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And notice what Paul says. He says, now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. That is changing the ordinance, you see. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further. Paul says there's a stop to this. They will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. As Janice and Jambres is uh, the folly was, so will those be who reject the ordinance of God. The third thing is that they have also broken the everlasting covenant. God had entered into a covenant with man. We know this. I spoke about this, you know, the, the eternal covenants, the everlasting covenants. Uh, we, we, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so on. But, but, but they broke a, 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 an everlasting covenant. And folks, understand this. God is the one who keeps everlasting covenants. And this is not a specific covenant that's being mentioned or so much so as it is that, you know, whatever covenant God says He's going to make with His people, His people sometimes don't keep that covenant. But this is an overall thing, and I'll I'll explain in just a moment. But God had entered into a covenant with man, and man turned his back on God's covenant. God is still going to keep his promise. God is still going to keep his word. But man, in this particular case, broke the covenant. How do we know this? Well, the covenant that is referred to here is probably found in Genesis chapter 9. And I'm going to read, you, read to you verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 9. You all know this. is after, uh, after the flood. And after the floods had receded and so on and so forth. It tells us that the rain shall be in the cloud, it says. The rainbow, I should say, shall be in the cloud. And I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. Listen to to what it says. The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Of every living creature that is on the earth. Of all flesh. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God pledged Himself to show His mercies toward the world by never again. Judging the world by water and by flood, as it were. But nevertheless, it didn't matter. A polluted race pollutes the earth. And chaos is the result. Little by little, you see, man began to break this Particular covenant. Well, God is going to be faithful. He'll, he'll never do this one again. Yes, there have been floods, but never like a worldwide flood as, as, as it happened then. Why? Because God is faithful to His Word. But Israel's sins, and, and this is specific now, not so much general, but specifically, Israel's sins polluted the promised land. Israel's sins polluted the promised land. Numbers 35, listen to this, verses 33 and 34. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of Him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. And so it's really simple then that To understand here that that it is man that has polluted the land that God said, I've made an everlasting covenant with you. I'm not going to break that covenant. But what did man do? Man continued to sin. And in particular, God's people sinned on the land. And so we find the result in verse 6 of our text in Isaiah 24. It says, Therefore the curse has devoured the earth. Verse 6. Verse 6. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. And therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. The ultimate judgment, the great tribulation, comes due to man's hardened and repeated rejection of God, which leads us to the scene of judgment itself in the next chapter, or next part of the chapter, verse 7. The new wine fails. The vine languishes. What does languish mean? To be feeble and to be weak, to be sick. The new vine fails. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. Folks, stop there for just a moment and think about this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we go through trials. We go through troubles. We go through persecutions. But guess what we do when we gather together, even when a person dies in our midst? We sing. Did you get that? We rejoice in the Lord. We're sad, but we rejoice. We go through tribulation. People persecute us. What do we do? We sing. Why? Because we know that God is sustaining us through these times of trials. What the prophet is saying here that a time is going to come when there is no more singing, no more laughter, no more uh, rejoicing, no more celebrating. Notice the, the wine fails, the merry hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourines, uh, uh, the, the tambourine, I'm sorry, the tamborations Cease. <laughs> I made up a, no, a word. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up. And so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city desolation is left. And the gate is stricken with destruction. And when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people... It shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. Here we are given a vivid illustration of what it will be like on the earth during the day of the Lord. In Eretz Yisrael, the harvest was usually a time of great joy. When the harvest was to be gathered, they rejoiced. But there will be no joy because there will be no harvest. The judgments of God will bring destruction upon the crops as well as the workers. Consider Revelation chapter six, verse eight. And by the way, this particular little apocalypse of chapter twenty-four in Isaiah. Uh, you can read all of chapter six, and you you see a, a lot of of, of, of uh, corresponding verses here. But in Revelation six, verse eight, John says, "So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him." And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. If you jump down to verse 15, it says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Folks, it is not going to be a time when there's going to be any singing, any rejoicing, any music, any merriment, any mirth. And then he gets specific, and he says the city of confusion... And he mentions the city of confusion there in verse 10. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. Now he could be referring to Jerusalem, but in a broader sense, he could also include all urban civilization. And like a farmer harvesting the last olive or the last grape, the Lord will do a a thorough job of judging. That's what verse 13 is all about. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. In other words, the Lord is going to do such a thorough job of of getting the very last olive, getting the very last grape. Everyone will be judged. That's what it's saying. But while a large segment of the population has stopped singing, I've, I've, I've painted a pretty bleak picture, but But you have to understand there's a righteous remnant that does remain. There is a righteous remnant that does remain during the time of the day of the Lord. In verse 14 it says, They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing. For the majesty of the Lord they shall cry aloud from the sea. It's kind of an interesting picture. You might think that it's a remnant that's On boats somewhere. The word sea has oftentimes been used for just a grand multitude of people. So from the midst of all of this destruction, all of this stuff, God has not forgotten His remnant. Therefore glorify the Lord, it says, in the dawning light. The name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. For from the ends of the earth we have heard songs, Glory to the Righteous. But I said, I am ruined. Now this is, this, is, this is Isaiah saying, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. So there's this slight mention of, of, of a remnant. But, but even while a preserved remnant is heard singing the praises of the Lord God for His saving grace, the prophet is mourning the horrors of the great tribulation. Knowing it to be a time of treachery, which is deceit and a time of betrayal. The phrase glory, or I should say the phrase that is given there, glorify the Lord in the dawning light. When you read that in the King James Version, it really it really gives us a a, kind of a different picture here. Because it says, Glorify ye the Lord in the fires. Glorify ye the Lord in the fires. And while we may not be going through the great tribulation ourselves, we will still go through fire in our lives. And that's the picture that the prophet wanted us to see. Glorify the Lord in the fires. Nevertheless, we can rejoice. And we do, I just mentioned it. We rejoice in the fires. Peter in First Peter chapter one, verses six and seven, He said, "In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, tested by fire, the very mention of gold that perishes. Uh, is to give us that picture of, of even our own gold when we when we purify it, it's purified in a fire, and all of the uh, all of those ores and other things that are that are just waste is, is is burned away. Fire makes precious and more precious things that are to be precious. We have to move on. So, in the next portion of our text. We see how the Lord's judgment will always be completed. But God begins. In other words, God will complete. Verses uh, 17 and 18 says Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth, or inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are open and the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, escape shall be impossible. When You think you've gotten away from one thing, you fall into another. When You think you've gotten away from that thing, you'll fall into another worse thing. No matter, in other words, no matter where sinners go, they will not be able to hide from the wrath of God. That's the picture here. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Revelation 6, I I want you to read that uh, tonight or tomorrow, but Revelation 6 verses 15 and 17 says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who is able to stand? You see, nobody will be able to stand. Nobody. Consider how the intensity of the Lord's judgment will touch everything on the earth. Isaiah 24, verses 19 and 20. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open, the earth is shaking or shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. Well, I don't want to talk about I was gonna say, have you ever seen a drunkard? Reeling to and fro? And shall totter like a hut, it says. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, it will fall and not rise again. The Lord is going to shake everything, while well, everything that man has made. It's going to stagger like a drunk and collapse like a flimsy hut or or, or or tent. Or as I heard in a movie one time, a wet taco. You ever try to eat a wet taco? It just falls apart, right? You know, you see, it doesn't, that's, that's what, what it means, just something that's flimsy. What man does, man thinks we make great things. Hey, it falls apart. There's mention in the 16th chapter of Revelation of a great earthquake. Revelation 16, verse 18 says, There were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. I mean, we're talking about the major earthquake of all time, yet to come. But the day of the Lord is not only going to affect the earth and its people. It is also going to affect the enemy and his hosts. You see it isn't just we're talking about completeness here when God is going to complete something he's not just going to get the people that have disobeyed him and rebelled against him and all of that he's going to go to the very source you see Isaiah 24 verse 21 to 23 says it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the hosts of exalted ones you see that the host of exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit And will be shut up in the prison. After many days it will be punished. And then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before His elders gloriously. Folks, if you'll notice something now when we get to the end. From beginning of chapter 24 to the end of chapter 24, you have now seen the little apocalypse. The apocalypse of the great tribulation to the very end when Jesus Christ comes to reign in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But all of this here that we read in these uh, three verses, 21 through 23, corresponds with, uh, with a couple of passages that we find in Revelation. First of all, Revelation 19. In verses 19 and 20 it says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. If you go on into the next chapter of Revelation 20, verses 1-3, through 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. We don't have time to talk about all that right now. But but God is going to judge the powers in the heavens above as well as the kings on the earth below. And these judgments are part of a spiritual battle that has been waged for centuries between the Lord of hosts and the armies of the devil. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is speaking of the battle that is waged between the Messiah who is going to win, of course, the seed of the woman who bruises the head of the enemy but the enemy bruised his heel, how? Huh? The nail. The war has been raging. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter six, verses ten through twelve. Finally, my brethren, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. In the heavenly places. And that corresponds, of course, to what we read in verse 21. The Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. So at the great at the end of the great tribulation, then the Lord will usher in a thousand years of his glorious reign over all the earth from Jerusalem, and in particular on Mount Zion. And this will indeed be the climax of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. The beginning of the millennium, Jesus Christ comes, goes to that eastern gate, establishes himself on the throne of David. I want to read and close with this, Revelation 20, verses 4-6. through John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about uh, the coming of Christ before a millennial period, a thousand year period, and this is it here. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. It's also important to note that Jesus, when He comes to this earth, is not going to come alone. The saints who have been caught up together with Him And with Him for seven years in heaven will come with Jesus. We're coming back to rule and to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then shall be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where righteousness will dwell. The little apocalypse. A lot of stuff to see, a lot of stuff to study about, but something to awaken our hearts in our minds, to the fact that a day is coming and we not only need to be ready ourselves, but we need to let others know so that they might come to Christ and know the joy of salvation because in that joy of salvation there is rejoicing and there is singing. And so... Let us pray.